in part two of Dr. Lucy Chester's compelling lecture about cartography and conflict. We hear about the Radcliffe Boundary Commission's deeply politicized role in drafting the map of India and Pakistan. This is episode six in the South Asia Institute's special series of podcasts about the partition of British India in 1947. Radcliffe relied on maps that had been generated by the colonial state. And these maps were deeply flawed, but they were not flawed in the way that we are accustomed to think necessarily. Um, I imagine at least some of you are familiar with W.H. Auden's poem, Partition, um, where he famously described Radcliffe's maps as out of date. In fact, Radcliffe's maps were based on land surveys from the mid-1930s, some from the late 1920s. Um, so not completely up to date, but not terribly out of date. Um, they were certainly not based on a new survey, which is what the contemporary conventional wisdom on how to draw a boundary suggested. Um, but what I would say is that the, the really significant problems with Radcliffe's maps were actually much deeper than whether or not they had been recently updated. They really had much more to do with fundamental defects in the cartographic presentation of data gathered by British institutions of colonial control. So what do I mean by this? I mean that maps were crucial tools that facilitated British control over South Asia. They displayed select elements of South Asian terrain as the British understood them and as they pertained to British colonial interests. So the visual focus of these maps was on what was needed to maintain control. Administrative boundaries figure prominently on these maps as do roads and railways, which were very important for mobilizing troops. So as a result, colonial maps really include very little information about the complexities of local identities uh, or, or connections between various religious groups or social groups or political groups or, or economic groups. Um, so this is an example of the largest scale type of map that Radcliffe had accessible to him. Um, this is a local revenue survey map. And this is a map that, that shows the villages, really the, the most fundamental elements of Indian society. This it shows villages that are home to, to the vast majority, particularly at the time of South Asians. But as you can see from this map, these villages appear only as blank space, outlined by administrative boundaries. The emphasis of this map is very much on the administrative boundaries. But the voices of the people who actually lived in these boundaries or, or the connections between these villages uh, are completely stilled by this particular cartographic silence. So I would argue that 
Radcliffe's decision about where the boundary line should be drawn was based on four factors. I do think that the most important, and this was the factor that was laid out as the most important in his terms of reference, was to separate, quote unquote, contiguous majority areas of Muslims and non-Muslims. And in the text of his award, Radcliffe cited, quote, the fundamental basis of contiguous majority areas, end quote, as the, the primary reason for his decisions. And, and this is part of what led him to divide the two great cities of Punjab, Lahore and Amritsar. This split between Lahore and Amritsar created significant security concerns. And this, I think, was factor number two in Radcliffe's reasoning. He was particularly concerned for the safety of Amritsar, of the, the Sikh holy city. Uh, and as a result, he awarded India to, um, <coughs> excuse me, two areas that actually had small Muslim majorities um, in Ferozpur and in Gurdaspur districts in order to create a sort of uh, buffer around uh, Amritsar. <coughs> Factor three, it's very clear from the text of Radcliffe's award that he was extremely concerned about the disruption to infrastructure, both in Bengal, but especially in Punjab. And in Punjab, he was particularly concerned about irrigation infrastructure. Uh, and this also, I think, has a lot to do with his conception of the British Empire's legacy to post-colonial states. Uh, it's also a concern that was largely unsuccessful. Um, Radcliffe tried to preserve the overall function of, of this completely interlinked irrigation system, but drawing a line through the middle of it was inevitably uh, going to cause major disruptions. Number four in Radcliffe's thinking, there was really a completely unspoken assumption about the desirability of preserving administrative boundaries. And this, I would argue, had partly to do with practicality, and partly to do, again, with this desire to re retain the legacy of the colonial administrative structure. So how do Radcliffe's maps illustrate this uh, process? Well, <coughs> to take two examples, the administrative boundaries, that is divisions between provinces, districts, tassils, uh, villages, and so on, were one of the central features, the most emphatic features of Survey of India maps. So to someone who was unfamiliar with the territory, as Radcliffe was, remember Radcliffe had never been to India, these maps would give the impression that Punjab was fairly easily divided along clear, precise administrative lines, and that doing so would presumably minimize administrative disruptions. A second point that I want to highlight has to do um, with some of the maps that Radcliffe used to draw his actual boundary line on. Again, I don't know how well you can see this. Can you guys see this clearly in the back? I'll take that as a no. Yeah. Um, but this this darker black line here, this is a hand-drawn line, drawn either by Radcliffe or his private secretary. I'm guessing Radcliffe himself, having interviewed his private secretary. And it's drawn on, um, I think, four base maps that were taped together. And they show, really vividly, that Radcliffe was in a tremendous hurry, especially at the end of the boundary-making process. Um, 
sorry, this is actually seven maps um, that were taped together. <coughs> so in order to draw this overall line stretching from uh, Kashmir to uh, Bahawalpur, Radcliffe taped these maps together, drew the final boundary over them, but the maps were taped together imprecisely, very quickly. Uh, the grid line, you can tell this because the grid lines on um, the different maps are not exactly aligned, um, and the point of best fit between these misaligned maps is not always the point where the hand-drawn boundary line crosses the edge of the map. So, so all of this underlines the tremendous hurry in which Radcliffe uh, and his aides assembled what, to, what is really an absolutely fundamental, essential visual representation of the Indo-Pakistani boundary. So. Sorry, going back a bit. Um, as independence approached, Mountbatten began to pressure Radcliffe. And this is a source of quite a bit of controversy in the historiography. Certainly, Mountbatten tried to hurry Radcliffe up. Um, Radcliffe replied that he could try to finish his decision a day or so early by uh, August 13th. So there's no question that Radcliffe, uh, that, sorry, that Mountbatten pressured Radcliffe to change his timeline. But Mountbatten also more controversially seems to have pressured Radcliffe to actually change the location of his line. Um, and having interviewed Radcliffe's late private secretary, who is one of the most important sources for these allegations, my belief is that Mountbatten did pressure Radcliffe to change his line, that Radcliffe listened to Mountbatten, decided he was right, and did change the line. And this was arguably a good thing in terms of the final boundary, um, because the bit that he changed would I think pretty clearly have completely destabilized Punjab um, because what it would have done is give Pakistan a, a salient, um, which is a cartographic term for, term for a finger of territory poking into the territory of uh, another political entity. So there would have been a long finger of Pakistani territory poking into Indian territory just south of Amritsar. And this would very clearly have threatened the security of Amritsar, both the physical security and the, the symbolic safety of this uh, Sikh center. Now, part of the reason that this whole issue is so controversial is that some critics have argued that Mountbatten actually pressured Radcliffe to change a bit of his line that was farther north, just south of, of Kashmir um, in uh, Gurdaspur. But this is actually incorrect. Uh, there's plenty of primary source evidence that shows very clearly that Radcliffe had already decided to give this bit of Gurdaspur, Gurdaspur to India rather than to Pakistan. So this isn't, I, I think in some ways this controversy, controversy has been misunderstood um, in the literature. But certainly one aspect of it is correct and is very important that, that Mountbatten was not as aloof as he claimed to be, and that Radcliffe was not a completely independent, objective, judicial arbiter, which is the image that Mountbatten in particular and the British government wanted to convey. So Radcliffe did, in the end, uh, submit his decision a little bit early on August 13th. <coughs> By this point in time, Mountbatten had decided that having the boundary award early was not a good thing after all, and so uh, he put it in a box 
and flew off to Karachi to celebrate Pakistani independence on August 14th. And this decision was related to Mountbatten's belief that releasing the location of the boundary line was going inevitably to cause violence. But he thought that if that violence took place after independence, it would be the responsibility of the new South Asian leaders. It would not be the fault of the British. So this, this is pretty clearly based on the minutes of the secret meeting um, at which this decision was discussed. This is pretty clearly the reasoning behind Rad, uh, sorry, Mountbatten's decision to delay the public release of the line. So what this meant was that for people who were living in the central parts of Punjab and Bengal, in the central parts of these two provinces to be divided, they woke up on the morning of independence and did not know whether they were in India or in Pakistan. Radcliffe did finally, um, on August 16th, release Radcliffe's decision at a, a gloomy meeting of Indian and Pakistani leaders, all of whom were bitterly disappointed and felt that, that the decision was unfair, which Mountbatten cheerfully took as an indication that it was even-handed, since both sides were equally critical. Now, I'm spending a lot of time talking about the, the dark side of, of partition, but I do want to acknowledge that independence was an extraordinary achievement um, and that many South Asians were, were proud and delighted to have finally thrown off colonial control. Um, but there was very much um, a, a dark shadow. As I've said, the division of India and Pakistan was accompanied by mass violence. <coughs> It's very hard to, to pin down the numbers exactly. The British estimate was that 200,000 people were killed. Uh, I think 500,000 is really the, the lowest number that most historians would agree on. Uh, many would argue that it was a million. I've seen some estimates that it was as high as 2 million. That seems to be the high end of the scale. Again, it's hard to know how many people were forced into exile, but it seems to be somewhere between 12 and 17 million people. In addition, some 30 to 50,000 women, probably significantly more, uh, were raped, abducted, forcibly married, or murdered. So why did this happen? And who was to blame? These are very difficult questions to answer. One way to answer them is uh, to say that all parties involved shared uh, some of the blame. <clears throat> in Punjab in particular, and Punjab was really the epicenter of the violence that took place in late 1947. There was less immediate violence in Bengal, although there was more of a longer-term pattern of migration. But in Punjab, all of the major communities, Hindu, Muslim, and Sikh, had built up private armies in the months leading up to the division. Um, and once the violence spiked in August and September, all of these private armies took place in, in mass killing. However, it was the British who were in charge. It was the British who helped create the conditions in which this happened. Uh, and so I would argue it's the British who must shoulder a significant portion of the blame. Not all of the blame, because it wasn't them doing the killing, uh, but a great deal because they contributed to the conditions that led to partition, and they set up a process of partition that, as hopefully you're all convinced by now, was deeply problematic.
So uh, would you guys like me to say a little bit more about the nature of violence in Punjab, or maybe just leave more time for Q&A? Sorry? Okay. Um, so one of the reasons that this violence happened was that the British in particular ignored the information that was available to them at the time. Um, Sikh leaders in particular had been very clear with the British and with the leaders of the INC and the Muslim League that they were not going to be happy about any partition that divided their homeland of Bengal, sorry, of Punjab, that divided Punjab into, and that they would resist any such division violently. In March of 1947, there had been serious attacks on Sikhs in Rawalpindi, um, which is a city in, in West Punjab. Uh, it's now right next to the Pakistani capital of Islamabad. <clears throat> and Sikhs felt that in the Rawalpindi attacks, the British authorities had stood by and allowed them to be slaughtered. And they vowed that they would never be caught that way again. So this is when Sikh communities began building up jathas, Sikh private armies. Uh, these were made up of former soldiers, both former members of the Indian Army and former soldiers from the Indian National Army. They had uniforms and weapons from the Second World War, and they also had battle experience and, and a familiarity with tactics from the Second World War. Muslim and Hindu groups also began to develop their own private army. So, so really you have all communities in Punjab greet, uh, gearing up for war. And the whole time that this was happening, Sikh leaders were being absolutely clear with the British about their intention, not just to defend themselves, but also to take preventative action if the partition boundary was not to their liking. And the British governor of Punjab, a man named Evan Jenkins, was telling Mountbatten this whole time that a serious disaster was brewing in Punjab. <clears throat> and one of the triggers for this violence was what is known as the sketch map line. This relates to the controversy over um, Mountbatten having pressured Radcliffe to change his line. Um, the sketch map line involved this salient, this finger of Pakistani territory just to the south of Amritsar. And it was leaked about a week before partition. And this line would have been seen by Sikhs as a nightmare line, not just cutting through the center of Punjab, but actually physically endangering Amritsar itself. Um, immediately after this leak, a, um, a Pakistan special train, a train that was carrying um, civil servants who were going to Pakistan or to what would soon in a few days become Pakistan, was derailed. Um, I believe two people were killed in that derailment. And, and this was, this seems to have been the spark that um, kicked off a much larger conflagration of violence. Sikhs put together highly efficient convoys to carry Sikh families out of Pakistani territory into Indian territory. Gangs of Sikh attackers were also highly efficient. They wore military uniforms. Uh, some of them used machine guns and other sophisticated weaponry. Others used uh, kirpans, traditional blades and spears. So, so the killing was both efficient and brutal. Uh, this is another area where the evidence is pretty sketchy, like in um, figuring out exactly how many people died or were forced into exile. It's unclear exactly how the violence unfolded. 
Evidence seems to suggest that the Sikh Jatas started in on the violence somewhat earlier than other groups, um, but certainly the Hindu and Muslim militias caught up very quickly. Uh, and before long, all of Punjab, particularly all of the cities um, and, and central Punjab, was a, a killing field. <clears throat> One of the government's reactions was to put together refugee special trains to carry Hindus and Sikhs out of Pakistani territory and to carry Muslims out of Indian territory. So what this meant was that these trains were packed with either all Muslims going one direction or all Hindus and Sikhs going the other direction. And these trains were very easy targets. They were lightly defended. The soldiers defending them were, in many cases, members of the other community. Everyone in Punjab by this point had been affected. So many of these soldiers had themselves lost family members in violence to members of the other community. So they were ineffective defenders in many cases. Um, such trains were often attacked. Um, their passengers would be slaughtered and the engineer would be left alive to bring this train full of corpses into the next station across the boundary. And episodes like this sparked a, a cycle of killing and revenge killing and further revenge killing um, that really ended only when the quote-unquote ethnic cleansing of Punjab was almost entirely complete. Um, before, in 1947, population of Punjab was about 35 million. That's um, roughly 13% Sikh, 57% Muslim, 28% Hindu. <clears throat> in 1950, Indian Punjab had a Muslim population of just over 1%. Pakistani Punjab had a Hindu and Sikh population of less than 1%. So as I say, this ethnic cleansing was extremely efficient and complete. And um, ethnic cleansing, of course, is a term that dates, well, I think was used most commonly in the 1990s in reference to the Balkans. But the idea of cleansing was used at the time. Um, I'll talk a bit more in a moment about um, women's experiences of partition. But rape and subsequent pregnancy was very common. And abortions were offered in camps for women who had been, quote unquote, recovered. And these abortions were referred to as safaya as cleansing, cleansing fetuses fathered by men from the other community, from the wombs of women of one particular community. So it's difficult, if not impossible, to say which side did more killing. Um, we do know that the ethnic cleansing of partition was certainly not spontaneous. Uh, it was carefully planned. It was extremely effective. And it was planned in ways that were clearly signaled to the authorities. British leaders at the top either ignored these signals or just didn't do anything about them because they felt that they couldn't do anything about them. Radcliffe, <coughs> uh, sorry, Mountbatten. Mountbatten memorably described the experience of trying to achieve the transfer of power as standing on the edge of a volcano, of feeling like the ground was just crumbling away beneath his feet. So a lot of what's going on here is about the British maintaining a facade of control when they really completely lacked control, um, in particular of Punjab, but also of other areas of, of North India. In uh, mid-September, Mountbatten and some of the Indian leaders 
flew over Punjab in uh, the Viceroy's small private plane to, to see the migration for himself. And Radcliffe's press secretary, Alan Campbell Johnson, recorded the experience in his diary. Um, and he wrote that uh, initially, as they flew from Delhi uh, northwest towards Amritsar and Lahore, everything seemed quiet at first. <clears throat> Quote, we struck the first great caravanserai between Ferozpur and Baloki Head and pursued it far across the Ravi River. We flew, in fact, for over 50 miles against this stream of refugees without reaching its source. Every now and then, the density of bullet carts and families on foot keeping to the thin lifeline of the road would tail away, only to fill out again in close columns without end. At Baloki Head, the actual boundary, the refugees waiting to cross the bridge overflowed and took on the appearance of a squatter's township. Here, they had been brought to a standstill. They then turned around and flew back into Indian territory and um, flew against uh, a Muslim caravan that it was about 45 miles long. Even in our brief bird's eye view, um, even our brief bird's eye view must have revealed nearly half a million refugees on the roads. And this is an extraordinary image, the idea of this bird's eye view. Um, it's very much like some of the colonial maps that we looked like, a view from above, in this case, literally a view from above, uh, a view that involves great men, in this case, both British great men and Indian great men, uh, looking down on, on these miserable masses. But as in colonial maps, this is a story that does not allow us to hear the voices of the people who were actually involved in this migration. And it, it's a perspective that doesn't allow us to, to differentiate between individual experiences. I was delighted to hear about your oral history project because oral history has played an absolutely huge role in allowing us to remember some of those individual experiences. Uh, for a long time, individual memories of partition were really just not a presence in the history books. Um, this started changing in the 1990s. But before then, uh, partition fiction, um, the short stories of Manto, for example, uh, were in many ways much truer to the social impact of partition than histories of the time were. Uh, and, and so this, this surge in oral history has been absolutely crucial to preserving survivors' memories. And Ravashi Botalia, Kamala Basin, and, and Ritu Menon have done groundbreaking work in this area. And women's experiences of partition were particularly challenging for historians to recover. Women who were victimized were often reluctant to share humiliating stories, stories um, of experiences that in their cultural context often meant that they were seen as having brought shame on themselves, on their families, on their larger communities. So oral histories of partition have allowed us to hear stories, uh, many of them, deeply, deeply disturbing tales of, of abandonment, of rape, of abduction, of, of forced marriage. Uh, in many cases, there was further dislocation after partition as both India and Pakistan sought to, quote unquote, recover women who had ended up on the wrong side of the line. In many cases, however, this recovery was uh, an additional trauma because it was bringing women back, first of all, to a territory in which they had never lived. And in many cases, it was bringing them back to families who 
considered them to be dead or worse than dead already and had no interest in reintegrating them. And so a lot of these recovered women ended up in living, ended up living out the rest of their lives in, in special camps. Some unknown number of the people who died during partition, especially women, actually died at the hands of their own family members who killed them in order to protect, quote unquote, protect the honor of the community against violation by members of other communities. Which is, again, a, a reflection of this idea that the division of territory threatened the purity of the community, whether it was Hindu or Muslim or Sikh, and that women as symbols of community purity had to be protected from violation, even if that protection took the form of death. One of the fundamental problems with the Radcliffe boundary was that it left millions of people as minorities in areas where they were subject to mass violence, to ethnic cleansing. Britons and nationalist leaders of almost all stripes failed to grapple with the social implications of creating new states with large minorities. So in some ways, the hostage theory, remember this idea that um, the welfare of one minority group would guarantee the welfare of the other across the boundary, the hostage theory proved to be tragically wrong. Alternatively, as um, Vazira Fazila Yakubili Zamandar argues, the violence of 1947 actually revealed the grim implications of the fundamental logic of the hostage theory, that if one minority group was not safe, the other one would be killed as well. <clears throat> Shortly after the events I've described, uh, the first Indo-Pakistani war broke out in Kashmir. Both <coughs> India and Pakistan sent troops into Kashmir where they remain today. India and Pakistan fought again in 1965 and 1971 when East Pakistan seceded from the West and became Bangladesh. So I would argue that these subsequent wars made it clear that the lines that Radcliffe drew in 1947 were not neat divisions, that they were bloody boundaries, and that partition is in many ways an ongoing process. The partition was not an event that took place in August 1947 and ended there, but that it continues to unfold. So to return to my argument, what does the Radcliffe Boundary Commission tell us about the larger process of Indian independence? First of all, that it was poorly planned and hastily implemented. Remember those imprecisely taped together maps? Second, that it was executed in large part with British interests in mind. Mountbatten's pressure on Radcliffe to change the line um, was an effort to avoid instability that would damage Britain's ability to maintain its economic interests and its political prestige in the region. Uh, Mountbatten also, as we've heard, delayed the, re the release of Radcliffe's report uh, in part to make himself and to make the British more broadly look good. Now, I want to be clear that I'm not denying South Asian agency here, um, but I'm noting the British effort to maintain control of what mattered most to them, even if at the very end of this process, all that mattered most was their reputation and their prestige and somehow making this incredibly chaotic, violent process look good. 
Uh, number three, the Radcliffe Boundary Commission provided a legal facade, which is something that appealed to all of the nationalist leaders, uh, I think probably in part because of their own personal legal background. And that legal facade helped to, to lend an additional facade of objectivity. And this is part of a, a wider British imperial pattern. Um, it's something that we also see uh, in, in the Palestine Mandate in the 1930s and 1940s, where incidentally the British spend a lot of time thinking about partition. And then in the 1940s decide not to partition Palestine. That's a separate, separate book project. Um, but in Palestine as well, it was very common to send a commission out to, uh, to do a job or to investigate a problem. And often the British government did so confident that the commission's conclusions were going to get them off the hook in some way. And I think that's a lot of what was going on with the Radcliffe Boundary Commission, that it was designed to get the British off the hook. Number five. The Radcliffe Boundary Commission, like the larger process of partition, did very little to take account of the interests of the people who were most affected by partition, the masses, the people on the ground, especially people living in the divided provinces. And neither um, the INC, nor the Muslim League, nor the British made adequate preparations to deal with mass migration. So in closing, maps matter. And boundary, boundary making processes matter, in part because they provide a window onto the larger partition process, uh, and partly because they show us that many actors involved in this process based their key decisions on imperial assumptions, assumptions that were so deeply ingrained, either in tools of the imperial state such as maps, or in the thinking of imperial servants, that they were no longer even visible. But these hidden assumptions had major effects, not just on the drawing of the boundary, but on the larger unfolding of the 1947 partition, in particular because they limited the ability and the will of both the fading colonial state and of the fledgling post-colonial states to deal effectively with the challenges that they faced, in particular and most tragically, the violence of 1947.